Welcome to Fake News, a fiery but mostly peaceful podcast where we dismantle the media misinformation that floods our news feeds all week long. The media tries to mislead you literally every day. Each episode of this podcast will leave you more equipped to correctly interpret the news and spot their deception quicker than before. This is Luke Taylor, an austere religious scholar who will be your host in this retrospective edition of Fake News. And I'm going to start today's story in the way that all great stories begin, with a meme. I recently came across a meme that was shared on Reddit about 12 years ago, and the caption on it on Reddit, it said, this aged poorly. So let me tell you what this meme depicts. It's it's supposed to be kind of like a pie graph, but the whole pie graph is filled in with just one color. And so the question at the top of the pie graph, pie graph it says, what will happen if gay marriage is legalized? So this was obviously back, you know, like I said, 10 years ago, 12 years ago. This is before gay marriage was legalized, which happened in 2015. And this is back when there was a cultural debate about this topic. And it posed the question here, what will happen? Like, what will actually happen if gay marriage is legalized? And so the whole color of the pie graph is filled in with the color blue. And that color down at the bottom, on the, on the key, it says that gay people will get married. In other words, saying that's the only thing that's going to happen if gay marriage is legalized. It's not going to be a bunch of other stuff. And then it shows a bunch of other colors on the key, and it, it gives, like, the color black. It says, a third world war will break out. <laughs> That's one thing it says will not happen if gay marriage is legalized. You know, the thing that, that makes this meme age poorly is that a lot of the things it lists actually have, well, happened, or, like, the Russia-Ukraine thing, when that was kicking off, a lot of people said, oh, no, is this about to be World War Three?" Which doesn't look like it's heading in that direction, but um, it's just kind of funny that that... that somewhat came true. Then the next color, color pink, which doesn't show up on the pie graph, it says various plagues will erupt. <laughs> so that that one, if you think about the coronavirus pandemic, um, there might have been a little bit of truth to that one too. It gives a reddish maroon color. It says the terrorists will win. Well, if you look at Afghanistan just from the past year, uh, yeah, that, that actually did kind of happen over there with the Taliban. And then it gives another prediction here that it said will not happen if gay marriage is legalized. And I'm just going to say now, the content that I discuss on today's program, it's not going to be suitable for young kids. Okay. And I try to make this a, a family friendly show, but uh, we're talking about some, some serious adult topics of a sexual nature. And so I'm going to just warn you if, if you have any young children around, okay, anyone, anyone under 13 or so, this is not information that's appropriate for them. But I want to tell you about it because it is the information that schools are going to teach young children. That brings me to the green color on this pie graph. It says, schools will begin teaching kids how to have gay sex. Now it says on this meme, as if to mock the idea that you could ever think that would be a possibility just because they legalized gay marriage, that now they're going to teach kids in school how to have sexual relations in that way. And they say, of course not. So they give this pie graph and none of these things are shown on the pie graph other than that gay people will just be able to get married. And they want you to think that's the only consequence that could happen if gay marriage was legalized. So I found that meme, as I said, it aged poorly. Uh, a lot of these things, it's actually kind of uh, darkly funny how much of the graph, basically everything on the list, plagues, world war, terrorists winning, all these things happened. And, and especially... The one about schools beginning to teach kids how to have gay sexual relations. That is literally happening as we will talk about on today's program. So I want to talk about some things today that are an outgrowth 
of the legalization of same-sex marriage from 2015, but I need to do something else first. We're going to put the retro in retrospective. We need to look back at how we got to this point as a society. You know, every plant has roots, and those roots lead up to a stem, and that stem goes into branches or uh, the, or whatever it is. It blooms into a flower or something else. In other words, gay marriage didn't just appear for the first time in human history in the past few decades. This was a sociological outgrowth of earlier ideas. And those ideas were based on even earlier ideas and so on and so forth, back and back for hundreds of years. And I want to explain that today because there's no better time to do it than now. It's, it's Pride Month of 2022. I want to talk about how we got to this point. Sexuality, especially non-heterosexual behavior. It went from something that was considered you were just supposed to be under self-control, something that was supposed to be kept controlled, you know, about 70 years ago. That's what people generally believed. And then it went to something that was tolerated and then something that was legal, something that is allowed, to now something that is celebrated not just by society, by nearly every major corporation, every world leader in the Western world. The most rapid shifts in sexual thinking have really come in the past 10 years. And so how did all this change so quickly? Well, to answer that, we're going to go back not just 70 years. We're going to go back to way before that. So buckle your seatbelts. We're going to explain how we got here as a society to Pride Month of 2022. And that's going to help us to understand where we're going next. So let's start today with Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who lived from 1712 to 1778. We're starting in the 1700s with Rousseau. And I might not say all these old old names correctly. Uh, I read, you know, I read these things. And so here I am saying it out loud for the first time. It was Jean-Jacques or whatever. I don't know. Jean, Jean, Jean-Jacques Rousseau came up with this idea that all people are basically good inside. And this is a, I don't know, what we might call a paradigm shift from how people have classically or traditionally viewed mankind. Rousseau came up with the idea that we're all good on the inside, and so whenever people do something that's wrong, it's because society basically forced them to act that way. Now, that's not how the Bible views things, um, and I'm not saying everything today is not going to just going to come from a biblical worldview, but when we talk about the Western world, we, we function under a system of Judeo-Christian ethics, okay? And... and and so even if you're not a Bible believer, you can be an atheist, but you still, if you live in that culture, you swim in that water, you're going to function off of Judeo-Christian ethics. Um, and and as part of that framework of viewing the world, a biblical framework, we might say, it's that the human heart is evil, that we're impure on the inside, that mankind is basically bad. And so um, that's how people who are conservative still view mankind today. Even if you're not a Christian conservative, we basically understand that mankind is kind of selfish and um, uh, and and just and wants to just gratify the self. It's not always internally altruistic, and so people who are conservative understand that, and that's how we view the world. A few hundred years ago, Rousseau came up with this idea that's different from that. That people are basically good, and so when we act bad. It's not really our fault. It's something that society did to us. Um, Rousseau wrote a book called Confessions, and this became a springboard for his whole philosophy. Um, or he tells a story which became the springboard for his whole philosophy. In, in Confessions, he talks about how as a young boy, Rousseau was approached by a man 
named M. Verrett. And this man, Verrett, he asked Rousseau if Rousseau would help him to steal some asparagus. Verrett was a very poor man. He wanted to sell the stolen asparagus for a bit of money. And so Rousseau does this for him. And then later on as an adult, he reflects back on this experience. And, you know, he realized he did do a bad thing, but he only did it out of feeling a charity for this older man. He wanted to help this man Verrett. And so th- this whole scenario, it implanted this thought in Rousseau's thinking that even when people do bad actions, evil actions, they still have good intentions, that they're basically good at heart, even if they're making the wrong choices. So as I said, this is different from the classical or Christian understanding of the world, that we do evil because we desire evil or that we are selfish sometimes, that we're corrupt. And so it's harder for us to choose to do the right thing. Well, Rousseau had an opposite view. He introduced this idea that people are basically good. And so this idea, as we're going to talk about today, it's had implications for the past few hundred years, and it it influences a lot of society today. You know, the classic view would say that man is basically bad, so that the law is there to keep us in line. But Rousseau would say that man is basically good and that it's the law that corrupts us. Uh, And we see this thought pattern play out in modern times, like when there's a police shooting of a black man. And people try to blame the cop and they try to justify the actions of the black criminal. You know, they say, oh, well, he was scared. You know, that's why he opened fire on police. But they shouldn't have murdered him just because he was scared. You know, or when there's a Black Lives Matter riot and you see stores being looted and people are making excuses for it. They say, hey, it's not their fault that they're acting that way. They've been pushed down by, by society for so long that, you know, this is their way of standing up for themselves. Or whenever you look at how there's um, more black people in prison than their proportion of the population would suggest that there should be. Well, we have some people say that the problem is is not in the black community, that the problem is in our laws and in our prison structure and that we're systemically racist, that it's our laws that are the problem. So we see this idea, this point of view playing out in, in modern times too. Rousseau tells another story later in his book. Uh, confessions, that as a teenager, he and some friends, they stole some pears from an orchard. And then they ate a few, and then they laughed, and they found it kind of silly and funny, and they threw the rest to some pigs. So he was reflecting on this, and and he was saying, you know, we were just kind of being goofball teenagers. That's not his exact words, but I'm just paraphrasing. We were just kind of acting silly, and we didn't really steal the pears out of hunger or greed. We just did it because it was fun. Which actually sounds kind of, uh, you know, not to over over dramatize just some teenagers being goofy, but you know that actually sounds like a worse reason or maybe a more sinister reason than doing it out of greed or hunger. But anyway, he said they just did it because it was fun. So he turned that as his lens through which he viewed all of evil. He said it's something people don't do because they are inherently evil. It's because they're trying to have some fun or they have some good reason for doing it. Rousseau says, I wouldn't have stolen the pears if it wasn't for this group of guys that I was hanging out with. And, you know, everybody was stealing pears, so I decided I would steal some too. So Rousseau's like, you know, sometimes we do bad things just because other people are doing it. It's not because I'm a bad person myself. I was just doing it to be like everyone else. And so it's it's this different way of thinking about morals that was different from the traditional understanding. The biblical understanding, which, you know, the Bible was the foundation for a lot of thought in the, especially in the Western world, um, throughout hundreds of years in history, especially in Europe, where Rousseau was from. I think he was French. 
but where he was from. He he was getting away from the biblical morality that was of that culture of that time. And he was saying, you know, sometimes whenever we do bad, it's not because we're bad. We're just trying to be like everyone else. There's a social pressure to do the wrong thing sometimes. So, again, we see this today. When you see the Black Lives Matter protests and they erupt into riots and then people make excuses for their actions and they say that criminals only do criminal things because they live in these neighborhoods surrounded by gangs and crime. So it's really society's fault that they do what they do. You know, that's what some people say today. It's this Rousseauian way of thinking. Like, I read what Rousseau thought, and I was like, wow, here's a guy who had a really hard time taking responsibility for his own actions. And, And yet also, this is the view of many people who are alive today in America. And we can trace this back to Rousseau. All right, we're going to go through several different thinkers today, but Rousseau was the first one, and he he, he was the first and also the last one I want to spend some time on. Uh, let me go through the rest of them, though, a little bit quicker. William Wordsworth. He was a poet. He lived from 1770 to, to 1850, and um, he believed that it was through the arts that you would change culture and society, that basically artists, they are the thermostat, not a thermometer. So in other words, the artists are the ones who set the temperature of the culture. They don't just reflect the culture, but they create the culture. Um, that's what the, you know, and that is what the arts do. I mean, I'm not saying he was wrong about this. Um, I think he actually <laughs> made some good points, and that's why we see so much culture being changed through the arts today. So Wordsworth, like I said, was a poet, um, but poets back in those days, they were looked at as the great thinkers of their time. They lived in a pre-modern age, a pre-scientific time. It was really in the early 1900s that we get into what you might call modernism, scientific thinking, where that became the norm, where people cared more what a scientist said than what a philosopher said. Back in the, uh, you know, in the 1900s, scientists became our philosophers. But before that, we looked to people like the artists, like Wordsworth, people like Leonardo da Vinci, so, or Shakespeare, perhaps. So um, Wordsworth was a poet in the 1800s, and he, he introduced the idea that it's through the arts that you impact the culture. Um, And like I said, I believe there's a lot of truth to that. Andrew Breitbart, he's famous for saying, politics is downstream from culture. And that's why Hollywood has such an influence, that when Attitudes on Gay Marriage started to shift, there were a lot of popular shows on, like Will and Grace. You know, for once, gay people weren't just a punchline anymore. They were these fully formed human personalities on TV. And this changed the way people saw um, homosexuality in the culture. Ellen Ellen DeGeneres was one of the first people, I think, who was openly gay on TV, and she had a talk show, which recently ended. It was on for for many years, decades. These things shape the culture, and then the culture, in turn, shapes the politics. And William Wordsworth was one of the first people to ever point that out. Okay, the next person I want to talk about is another poet. It was Percy Shelley, who lived from 1792 to 1822. Percy Shelley did not live long. Um, but he was a very influential poet for his time. Like I said, poets were the thought leaders in those days because it was that pre-scientific age. And here was Shelley's contribution to the world, which has had ramifications you'll recognize up to today. Shelley said that the goal of life is happiness. The goal of life is happiness. That this is what, this is really the ultimate thing we should seek for ourselves, what we should be looking for in this world, what we should try to get out of life is to be happy. And Shelley believed that institutions like marriage, that they inhibit our happiness, that they need to be done away with. 
and, and this might sound like Karl Marx to you, but this idea was put forward before Karl Marx. Shelley said, it's time to move on from sexual ethics, the traditional sexual ethics, because all they do is just make people miserable. And he said, we need freedom from religion because freedom from, from religion would mean freedom to love. Does that sound familiar? The idea that freedom from religion is freedom to love, to love whoever you want. Shelley was building on previous ideas, the ideas of Rousseau, but Shelley was taking them the next step further. You know, that, that starts with this thing that all people are good and that society's laws and rules just make us bad. And so Shelley came forward and said, yeah, and you know what? The rules need to change because they're inhibiting our happiness. So Shelley had an effect. And the next one I want to talk about today, Friedrich Nietzsche. He lived from 1844 to 1900. Nietzsche is famous for the phrase, God is not real, God is dead. This was his big claim to contribution to philosophical thinking. The idea of God is so outdated, so irrelevant anymore to our lives, he might as well just be said to be dead. So Nietzsche's thing is that God is not real, and therefore that life has no objective meaning. So therefore, Nietzsche said, kind of like Shelley said, you should just do whatever makes you happy. Because personal satisfaction, that is the highest purpose that you can live for. And Nietzsche said, hey, all people have their own strengths, so develop yourself, excel at whatever you're good at, and try to find meaning in that, and try to be happy. And this was Friedrich Nietzsche, what he said, and it's kind of like what any modern atheist would say too, that there's no greater purpose to our existence. And so the, the best you can do for you is to just try to be a happy and fulfilled person. And, and beyond that, nothing else matters. So this was Nietzsche. He was kind of the first person to make this a mainstream thought. And it's a completely true statement if God is not real. Now, if you know me at all, you know I'm a Christian, so I do believe God is real. But I'm even trying to set that aside for right now and just point out the fact, if God's not real, then that's true. There's no higher thing to this existence in life than being just being personally satisfied or happy. Like, who cares beyond that? You know, who cares about <laughs> nothing you do is going to matter a hundred years from now or a thousand years from now, a million years from now. Nobody's going to know who you were, who you are. Nothing you did will have a big effect. So, yeah, what's the point if God's not real? And that's why a lot of people don't want to believe in God. And this is why Nietzsche doesn't want to believe in God, because if there's a divine creator then logically speaking, he's a rule maker. He has a right to make the rules. And if he has a right to make the rules, then I'm accountable to him. And so Friedrich Nietzsche. The next person today I want to discuss is Karl Marx. He lived 1818 to 1883. And the thing to remember with Marx and his contribution to thought, I mean, there's a whole lot we could say about Marx. I just want to kind of focus it on this one area that he divides everything up into two groups, the oppressors and the oppressed. That was his binary way of dividing the world. Um, I, you know, I remember it being said there's three types of people in the world, the ones who can count and the ones who can't. And a lot of us divide the world up based on the, the, what's most important to us. Okay, If you're a Cardinals fan like a sports, of a sports team, you might say, oh, well, there's Cardinals fan and there's everyone else. <laughs> you know, if, you, if, if your most important thing to you is Batman and Superman, do you like Batman or do you like Superman? You know, whatever you're, whatever's most important to you, you divide the world along that binary way of thinking. We all do it based on what our personal, what's important to us. Um, for Karl Marx, it was this whole thing of being an oppressor or one of the oppressed. And so for Marx, I'm not going get to get into all his economic theories. I just want to be per what's pertinent to 
the genealogy of ideas that we're discussing today. Marx, as well as Nietzsche before him, they introduced the notion that customs, history, tradition, culture, these are all just tools of oppressors to retain their power. And so any idea that upholds the status quo, that keeps things the way they are, that is suspect, even if it's even if you believe it, any even if it's your own ideas, okay, even if you agree. But if it upholds the status quo, then it's suspect. It might just be that you're using using that to retain power, to keep things the way that they are. So this is a cynical view. What Karl Marx put forward was a cynical view that questions any authority because it says you can't trust the motives of authority, that they aren't really pure motives. They're just trying to be power grabs. And so therefore, only the oppressed have a clearer access to truth. Um, and hopefully that wasn't, I know that was kind of a radical idea just to throw in here. I hope I explained it well. We recognize it today in critical race theory, where this idea of what Marx, what Marx created, the, the oppressor and oppressed paradigm, binary, where you take that and you apply it to race, where we have whites versus non-whites. Okay, so we see that today in, in critical race theory, that if you are a non-white person, you are said to have a greater access to truth because white people are just trying to retain their privilege and their power. And so they just want to keep culture the way that it is because they're trying to retain their power. Okay, so that critical race theory is the, is taking Marx's ideas and applying them to race. Okay, and this is how we, a lot of stuff is it, we, in this intersectional time we live in. We see straight versus LGBT, man versus woman. You know, if you are a white straight male, you are said to have privilege. And everyone else is, is an oppressed person. So this was Marx's contribution. He put this binary way of thinking into the world. And, we, and we've just built on it since then. Uh, another influential person around this time, Charles Darwin. He lived from 1809 to 1882. And so basically the same time period as Marx. And Darwin's contribution to the world was the theory of, of evolution. And uh, the, his contribution to kind of the way the world thinks nowadays is that God is no longer considered necessary to explain life. That it's all just random natural selection, a, a process that's built entirely on chance. But you no longer need God to explain where humankind and where all the animals and all that came from, where the world came from. Darwin himself didn't believe that there was no God. He was not an atheist. Uh, he was not even agnostic. He was, I don't know if he considered himself, uh, what exactly what, religiously speaking. But he put forward this theory of evolution, and uh, he had a scientific mind, um, but he did not consider himself an atheist by any means. He believed in God. But a lot of people took his ideas and they said, you know what? We really don't need to believe in God anymore. Now we can just say that evolution created all this stuff. And so I'm not even making, I'm not, don't, I don't want you to get distracted today. I'm not making any comments in favor or against evolution right now. I'm just telling you what people did with Darwin's ideas that basically said, yeah, we can now explain where the world came from without needing to inject God into it. And so Darwin himself, that was not his way of taking it, but you're going to find that a lot of these historical figures, they proposed ideas, but they didn't always follow those ideas to their logical conclusion because their ideas were so radical that if you, if you just went all in on them back then, then your ideas would be shunned. So they kind of just put forward a little bit, but they didn't totally trace their ideas out to their logical conclusion. So Darwin proposed a scientific theory and that theory had certain implications. Darwin wasn't trying to make the world more atheistic, but his theory of evolution opened the door 
for many people to reject the idea of God because now they had a scientific theory and it doesn't require God to explain the diversity of life on the planet. And so therefore, then you build on that idea further. Many people have run with this to suggest that humans have no special or significant value compared to any other animal that's running around on the earth. So there was Darwin's contribution. Next person I want to talk about today is Sigmund Freud. Freud lived from 1856 to 1939. We're into the 1900s now. We're into that scientific age. And Freud didn't just pop out of nowhere. I probably don't have to tell you how influential he was. Freud built on what came before. These ideas that you don't have to believe in God, that life has no objective meaning, that we're all basically good at heart, that our highest purpose in life is just to be happy. And so Freud took all this stuff and he injected a new idea into the conversation. The idea that um, sexual happiness is essential to our lives, that you can't truly be happy if your genitals aren't happy. Uh, and he also introduced the idea that humans are sexual from birth onwards. You know, if you ever hear about his um, the his theories on like oral fixation and anal retentive and, and all that stuff that you learn about in psychology, he introduced this idea is that the idea that from the time you're born, you are a sexual being. And so um, we see some of these ideas playing out in modern times too, which we're really going to get into later. Um, but when you see the sexualization of children, that is Freudian in nature. Freud believed that morality, what was right and wrong, was basically subjective, that it just essentially boiled down to what your personal taste was. Okay, and this is how he would make that case. He would say, you know, a guy is fine with kissing a woman, but he would not want to use her toothbrush. <laughs> you know, just to, to kind of boil it down to a sentence there. A guy, why would a guy be okay with kissing a woman, but he would never use her toothbrush in a million years? Well, Freud said, you know, doing one of those things is just as germy as the other. So it's not really logical to be okay with one of those, but against the other. So Freud just kind of took that and said, you know what? I think morality as a whole, it's really just based on personal taste. It's not really based on any kind of rules, not objective rules. And so if morality is just taste, then everybody should just make up their own morality. So Freud labeled, um, if you have a moral objection to a behavior, like a sexual behavior, like homosexuality, Freud said, you know, homosexuality is basically harmless. So if you don't like homosexuality, if you think it's wrong, if you have the biblical, traditional worldview of sexual ethics, that's not really based on absolute rules. That's based on a personal animus. And by the way, Freud's thinking on that. It manifests today, where if you're against, <laughs> you know, any sexual behavior under the sun, you're labeled as having some kind of phobia. Yet you are, you know, homophobic, transphobic, all of that stuff. They call it a phobia because they say it's not really based on a, a, a principle that you live your life by. It's just based on a personal distaste for it. Okay. And so when gay marriage was being debated a few years ago, people who supported it, I remember they loved to use the word icky to attack you if you liked traditional marriage. You know, if, if they said, hey, you just want to ban gay marriage because you think that gay sex is icky. And I would always hear that and I'd think, well, that's that's really beside the point. You know, it doesn't matter what I think is icky or not. What matters is is right and wrong and, and who sets the rules and what rules are we going to live by. Um, but to the people who were arguing in favor of gay marriage, they really wanted to make this all about 
No, you just have a personal distaste for this thing. You have a phobia. You have a, you're a phobic. You have um, just a personal animus. Now, Freud was an atheist. And as I said before, he thought that religious belief was really just a form of wish fulfillment. That whatever you wanted God to be, that was basically what you believed God was. And so Freud didn't live his life by, obviously, by the sexual teachings of the Bible or anything else that was rooted in religion when it came to deciding what he thought was right and wrong. Um, He said religion was just a form of wish fulfillment, which, you know, it kind of makes me wonder if he applied that same logic to himself, (laughs) that, that perhaps he was only an atheist because he didn't want to believe that God was real. You know, I kind of wondered that about Freud. Uh, There was a good part of Freud, um, or at least he had some limitations, even as radical as he was for his time, as influential as he was with his radical ideas. He recognized some limitations here. So Freud believed that society would basically collapse if all individuals dedicated themselves to just seeking the the pleasure of their genitals, to put it frankly. (laughs) You know, like I said, a lot of the thinkers who put forward these these huge ideas that we're talking about today, they didn't always fully endorse or follow out the ramifications of their own belief system because it would just be too radical for that time. It would always be the next generation who came along later who built on those beliefs and pushed the ball forward. So Freud even was saying, hey, listen, you know, God's not real. We just need to try to be happy. And you can't really be happy unless you're sexually fulfilled. But we can't literally do that, guys, because then society would just collapse. So he didn't even want to follow his own ideas to their own natural conclusion. Freud said that our desires, our sexual desires, we really need to rein those in so that civilization civilization doesn't collapse. Uh, Freud didn't believe that there was this utopia of sexual fulfillment for all people that was even possible. It was desirable to him, but it was not possible. The needs of sexual happiness, he said, they need to be balanced with the needs of a functioning society. So therefore, in order to make us happy, even if our sexual needs couldn't be met, Freud suggested some alternative sources for satisfaction. Uh, Devoting yourself to science, to art, to religion, especially to Christianity. Like, that's what Freud said. Even though he was an atheist, he said, hey, if you devote yourself to religion, that's just a way to really focus your energy that can bring you a lot of fulfillment in life, even Christianity. Oh, and some other ideas that Freud put forward, alcohol and drugs. Um, He said, hey, that's another place you can find some fulfillment, too. (laughs) So Freud is considered really like the father of modern psychology. Um, Even in my my Psych 101 class, which is like the first class I took in college, the first person that we learned about in that class was Sigmund Freud. And he was considered basically the father of psychology. And what did he say? Well, hey, uh, the only thing that matters is your sexual happiness. And since that would destroy society... Throw yourself into alcohol and drugs instead. (laughs) And this is the guy we've built our whole psychological system on. All right, the next one today is Wilhelm Reich. He's a psychoanalyst and a doctor. He lived from 1897 to 1957. So, we are fully in the scientific age now, um, as far as the, the philosophers and thinkers that, we, that we're looking back at. We're now into the scientists. It used to be that the world listened to poets in the early 1900s. We moved, though, into the modern age, modernism, science. And now our thought leaders are psychologists and scientists. 
So Wilhelm Reich, he basically gave a marriage of Freud and Marx's ideas. As I said before, Marx divided society up into oppressors and oppressed. And so Reich turned, turned the, took this framework and he applied it to sex. The idea that our psychological well-being is tied to our sexual identity and that that is supreme over all other identities. And so those who ascribe to traditional sexual ethics, they are really oppressing those who want to live sexually liberated. So Reich believed that we would not have true freedom until the nuclear family was dismantled. And so uh, Reich wrote this book, The Sexual Revolution, in 1936. And, you know, it was just a few decades later that that book became a reality in societies, and we call the, the 1960s the time of the sexual revolution. So Reich, um, he believed that children are sexual from birth, just like Freud, and also like Albert Kinsey, who we'll talk about in a couple minutes. Uh, and so Reich really pushed this idea that we need to start teaching sex ed as early as possible in life. The kids aren't really supposed to be kept innocent and pure from sexuality, but that they actually need to be indoctrinated into it as soon as possible. And as, of course, we see that in 2022 in our schools. I remember 10 years ago seeing that kindergarten and first grade classes in California, that they were teaching sexual education. I mean, I remember sounding the alarm 10 years ago that the things that happen in California, they always work their way out to where, where I live in the Midwest. Just the other day, actually, we'll share this later too, that I saw a news clip on Lives of TikTok about a school in Iowa, and they were having drag queens come in to perform provocative sexual dances, if I could put it, <laughs> to put it mildly, okay? A man dancing around in a leotard at a school assembly, not at a high school, for an elementary school. This is happening all over the country, too. We're going to get into that in a little bit. I'm still talking about how we got to this point. So how did we get to this point? Well, through men like Wilhelm Reich. Uh, and an interesting fact on Reich and Marx and Freud, some of these, and Nietzsche, some of these thinkers that we're talking about <laughs> and, and, and the effect that they have on society today, you look back on how their own lives ended up. They were insane men. They ended up insane or like or in prison, literally. Wilhelm Reich. He was convicted of fraud, and he died in prison. Karl Marx, this man that people proudly call themselves Marxists today and try to take his ideas and, and, and say, this is how we should live in this socialist or communist utopia of society. Marx was an alcoholic who lived in filth. He suffered medical problems his entire life. Not, not because, almost certainly not because he just had like bad genetics or something, but because he lived a, a disgusting lifestyle he had an unenviable existence. His, his own family said they were miserable and suicidal as they lived with him, that they believed Marx himself to be a man possessed by demons. And this is a man who's written, who didn't really work a real job. He, he was financed by a rich friend to live his disgusting, worthless lifestyle. And he wrote insane ramblings called the Communist Manifesto that people actually live their lives by today and try to apply to all of society which has resulted in millions and millions upon millions of deaths due to starvation and totalitarian dictatorial governments like China. <laughs> I could go on and on about, I, I wasn't going to try to get into the economic stuff with Marx today. I'm saying you look at not just the terrible wickedness and just the horrific ideas that he put forward, but look at the man himself. He lived a disgusting lifestyle if you look at Karl Marx. Sigmund Freud died of jaw cancer because he constantly smoked 
I mean, every picture you see of him, he had a cigar. And so he got cancer. And, and here's the thing, though. Not that that, you know, a lot of people smoked back then. They didn't realize the harmful effects. Okay, sure. But Freud's doctor was afraid to tell him that he had cancer because he found Freud to be so mentally unstable. He was afraid that Freud would kill himself if he found, if he found out that he had cancer. And this is the guy who, like I said, he's the father of modern psychology. And he was so mentally unstable, his doctor thought he was suicidal. Friedrich Nietzsche gave us the idea that God is dead. He had a mental breakdown in 1989. Did you notice he wasn't even that old? He lit, He was 45 years old and he had a mental breakdown and he spent the last decade of his life in an insane asylum. That's Friedrich Nietzsche for you. The man who proudly proclaimed that God is dead went literally insane in his, in his 40s and 50s and died young. He died at like 56 years old. These are not the people we should be following today, guys. Okay, just just uh, just a few more guys today. I want to tell you about Alfred Kinsey. He lived from 1894 to 1956. Alfred Kinsey was one of the most influential thinkers on modern sexual theory in history, even though he was only alive about 100 years ago. But he's had radical effects on how we think about things today. Let me read you his bio from Wikipedia. Alfred Kinsey was an American biologist, professor of entomology and zoology, and sexologist. In 1947, he founded the Institute for Sex Research at Indiana University, now known as the, now known as the Kinsey Institute for Research in Sex, Gender, and Reproduction. He's best known for writing Sexual Behavior in the Human Male, Sexual Behavior in the Human Female, and also known for the Kinsey Reports as well as the Kinsey Scale. His research on human sexuality is foundational to the field of sexology and, and has provoked controversy in the 40s and 50s. His work has influenced social and cultural values in the United States as well as internationally. I say all that because you've probably heard the name Kinsey before. Nobody denies the influence of Alfred Kinsey. But most people don't realize that this man, who's the great thought leader in sexual ethics of today, who opened our eyes to a whole new world, eschewing the, the sexual ethics of long ago, like in the Bible, and coming up with our own, this man was a complete sexual deviant. The things he did to his own body, <laughs> they are too horrifying. I'm not even going to discuss them on this podcast. That would push us from, I tried to say we're kind of in PG-13 territory on today's program. That would push us into the R-rated territory, but you can look it up if you want to. The things that Alfred Kinsey did to his own body are demented and disgusting. And he, he said that he believes sexuality is fluid. Now, that's a very popular modern idea. It was it was developed by Alfred Kinsey. Um, now we even say gender is fluid. Alfred Kinsey developed the idea of sexual orientation, and he included attraction to animals, which we might call bestiality today. He considered that just a normal, legitimate, totally totally normal sexual orientation. He thought about fifty percent of the male population was gay, and that ten percent were sexually attracted to animals. And he and these are, by the way, the, these are the Kinsey reports. These are the basis for a lot of psychologists, like a lot of psychologists, cite Alfred Kinsey today as someone that they're, you know, we're relying on his research, the the groundbreaking research he did in the early 1900s, that where he said 50% of the male population is gay, and he derived at that these sweeping conclusions about the population 
by interviewing almost entirely men in prison, as well as male prostitutes. He interviews a particular small segment of society, which is not whatsoever representative of all of society, and then he used that research to make these sweeping generalizations about the population at large. In modern times, textbooks and psychology books, they will quote statistics from Kinsey as if his research is just totally <laughs> applicable to, to modern times. And they don't tell you that his, his studies on sex that came almost entirely from sex offenders in prison. He was another one of these guys who was intent on proving that children are sexual from birth. And he based that with an interview on a pedophile, just one single pedophile, who described his sexual interactions with children as young as five months old. And then Kinsey made the declaration that children are sexual from birth just because of what one pedophile told him. And instead of reporting that pedophile to the police, Kinsey used him for data. He recorded him sexually molesting an 11-month-old baby for 38 minutes. And today, Kinsey is celebrated as someone who like prepared society <laughs> for the sexual revolution of the 1960s as well as what has happened in society up to today. He's paraded as a gay civil rights icon, even though he himself was not openly homosexual, but he's considered instrumental in overturning what were the conservative opinions on sexuality in the early 1900s and opening up the world to this idea that homosexuality was common and normal, despite the fact that his estimated number of homosexuals in society, it was way overestimated, not at all realistic. So there was Alfred Kinsey. Two more I want to talk about today. Um, one of them was Herbert Marcuse. He lived from 1898 to 1979. And one thing I hope you've been picking up on in this list is that each new thinker, each new generation, they built on the thinkers who came before them. So we started with Rousseau in the 1700s, and each of these big influential philosophers who came after them, they took what the previous ones were, what they believed and what they, what they had introduced, and they built on these things. Well, they might have taken two or three of these guys and tied them together. So now we see how each of these modern belief systems, they're built on premises that past generations have constructed. And another person who did that was Herbert Marcuse. He lived from 1898 to 1979. So we're getting closer and closer to today. So Herbert Marcuse tied a lot of these ideas together. He applied the oppressor and oppressed class. He took that class distinction and he applied it to politics. He said categories like sexual deviant, those are just tools of oppression. He said the education system needs to be used to set kids free from sexually repressive beliefs. And he himself was anti-free speech. He said that speech that causes oppression of the marginalized, that that should be outlawed um, in, in modern terms. This would be like saying that speech that teaches that homosexuality is a sin, speech that doesn't use someone's preferred pronouns, that should be outlawed. That's the kind of speech that today would get you canceled, by which I mean to get you fired or kicked off social media. Marcuse was a very political person, and he didn't want what he would consider verbal harm to be inflicted on any marginalized class, especially the sexual ones. So he, did not, he didn't believe in free speech. He's associated with the Frankfurt School in Germany. And that's something I've noticed a lot about these guys, is every, every time you see a terrible political idea from the past hundred years or so, it's so often tied in with this Frankfurt School. Um, you just see that somewhere in the background. So anytime you see that, the Frankfurt School stuff, just avoid it like the plague. <laughs> and I mean that quite literally. It's like a plague 
on intellectual thinking. Okay, I want to talk about one more person who's extremely influential to where we're at today, and that is John Money. John William Money lived from 1921 to 2006, so we're basically now up into modern times. But what was John Money's contribution to modern sexual thought? Well, let me explain. I'll I'll start with his Wikipedia bio. He was a New Zealand psychologist, a sexologist, an author known for his research into sexual identity and biology of gender. He was controversial for his conduct toward vulnerable patients, including endorsing conversion therapy, which was aimed at young children. He was one of the first researchers to publish theories on the influence of societal constructs of gender on the individual formation of gender identity. He introduced the terms gender identity, gender role, and sexual orientation, and he popularized the term paraphilia. So John Money, in other words, he's the father of gender identity, okay? He took gender identity and he made that a thing. He separated sex from gender. If you go back to any time more than 20 years ago, we use the terms sex and gender interchangeably, right? We would say, uh, you know, you could fill out a form, And it might say sex or it might say gender, but it meant the same thing. They're just two words that just basically they were synonyms of each other. They meant the same thing. Well, John Money came up with this idea that those could actually be two different things. That your sex is what you biologically are as far as male or female. But your gender, that's a social construct. So his effect on the modern sexual psychology, that's clear. And he's he's probably got the most clear and direct impact on modern gender theory and politics and culture whenever it comes to gender of of any person I've listed so far. And yet, you've probably never heard of John Money's name. He created this idea that sex and gender can be two different things. So he's like the transgender god king. And yet there's no statues to this man. He wasn't eulogized whenever he died as this groundbreaking revolutionary thinker. Well, I mean, he was, but it wasn't like a mainstream acknowledgement. He's credited with 65 awards, degrees, academic honors in his lifetime. But you don't see people list his name a lot. You don't see him credit him with the ideas that he introduced, which, which a lot of society follows today. Now, why is that? Well, let's read the next line of his Wikipedia article. Recent academic studies have criticized Money's work in many respects particularly in regard to his involvement with the involuntary sex reassignment of the child Bruce Reimer, forcing this child and his brother to simulate sex acts which Money photographed. So, uh, Bruce Reimer, he was one of two twin boys who was born in 1965. However, sadly, shortly after birth, David's genitals were horribly mutilated by a doctor who used a bizarre circumcision technique that I don't even want to explain here because it's too horrible to even discuss, as will be many things that fall into this section where I talk about Dr. John Money. So Dr. Money recommended to the family that they raise this this boy, Bruce David, raise him as a girl. Money believed that gender was not something innate. It was something socially conditioned. The idea that, that gender is a social construct, that the expectations and beliefs about what it is to be a male or a female, that they are thrusted upon us by society, but that if we want to, we can construct our own definitions of those terms. Not only that, as I said, Bruce was one of two twin boys. So Money was really excited because he got to test, he had the perfect opportunity here to test his gender theory by instructing the parents to raise one as a boy and the other one as a girl and just to see what happened. So Bruce was named Brenda and he was raised to believe that he was a female. Now Money regularly visited the children 
and the visits eventually turned into money forcing the children to perform sexual acts on each other while money studied and photographed them. Okay, so according to Wikipedia, when either child resisted these activities, money would get angry. Both Reimar and his brother, Brian, recall that money was mild-mannered around their parents, but ill-tempered when alone with them. When they resisted inspecting each other's genitals, money got very aggressive. Reimar says, he told me to take my clothes off, and I just did not do it. I just stood there. And he screamed, now, louder than that. I thought he was going to give me a whooping. So I took my clothes off and stood there shaking. Money's rationale for these various treatments was his belief that childhood sexual rehearsal play was important for a healthy adult gender identity. So Money abused these kids. And he's the man, This again, this is the man who came up with these, these ideas that sex and gender are two different things and that gender is just a social construct. And he was a demented, psychotic, delusional pedophile. As, you, as You'll probably not be surprised to hear this next part. Money was an apologist for pedophilia. He believed there was nothing wrong with sexual relationships between adults and children, as long as both of them consent, meaning as long as they're both okay with the arrangement, then it's fine. Well, eventually, Bruce Reimar became old enough to understand the distinction between male and female, and and he realized that he was a male, regardless of his sexual reassignment surgery and all that, being injected with estrogen as a kid, his entire social conditioning of being raised as a female, he realized that he was actually a male. And so, sad to say, both Bruce and his twin brother, they were permanently traumatized by the psychological sessions with John Money. One of them died of drug overdose at 36. The other one killed himself at age 38. So... Dr. Money ruined these boys' lives. And not only that, his entire theory was demolished by that scenario. Because he, here he had the perfect opportunity to prove his theory that sex and gender are these, ins are these separable things, that gender is just a social construct. Dr. Money had literal twin boys that he could use as his test subjects. He had a legal opportunity to step into this tragic situation and use this boy Bruce as his guinea pig and then Bunny's entire theory backfired. Bruce grew up old enough as a teenager. Once he could tell the difference in male and female, he realized he had been living a lie. So anytime you hear someone say that sex and gender are separate categories, that somebody could be one biological sex, but identify as a different gender, when they say that, they are following the philosophy and the theories of John Money, a pedophile and psychotic lunatic who preyed on children against their will. Someone whose theories were disproven by his own experiments, okay? When you see that the current Biden administration saying that their official policy on transgender issues is that sexual reassignment surgeries are appropriate for minors, they are following in the footsteps of John Money, the practices that led to Bruce Reimer committing suicide as an adult. They're basing, they're basing their ideas, their policies, on what happened to Bruce Reimar and what John Money told them about sex and gender. By the way, as I said, Bruce Reimar, that these people did not live that long ago. I saw an interview with Bruce on Oprah just recently. Um, not, not it was it had been recorded years ago because, like I said, he he committed suicide at age thirty eight, but he didn't live too long ago.
Okay, so a lot of these ideas are pretty new. But here's the thing. Dr. Money made all these claims about sex and gender. He published them as official science research or whatever. A lot of people took his ideas and ran with it, and it's permeated all of society. And and yet, by the time it got all out there and everyone's believing this stuff, then we start to see the serious problems that Bruce Reimar and his brother had that one died on a drug overdose and the other one committed suicide. They were traumatized by this experimentation that John Money put them through. This did not have a happy ending. And yet by then, it was too late. This research was everywhere and people were just believing it as gospel truth. Society bought into this false notion of reality about sex and gender. Society totally bought into it before they could even see where it led in the original research. So... Let's review some of the ideas we presented, presented so far, because we went through like 10 different people, okay? And it's okay that you don't, if you know, you don't have to remember every single one individually. Some you've probably heard of, some you haven't. But we see that all these men from the 1700s onward, they have created the society, the worldviews that people hold today. Let's tie some of all this together. These ideas that man is inherently good. This was a foundational premise, because not only is it different, from what mankind historically thought when it came to the human heart or whatever, it means it, it means that whatever we feel deep down on the inside is right and true and also good. You know, whereas the Bible says the heart is deceitfully wicked and who can trust it, Rousseau said, follow your heart because your heart, who you are deep down in your core, that is inherently good. This is a false idea that uh, permeates all of society now. The idea that God is not necessary to understand the world because perhaps lightning just struck upon somewhere and life evolved from there. God is no longer a necessary part of the equation. You can believe in God if you want to, but you don't have to because he's been taken out of the equation. The idea that if there's no God, then what's our purpose? Our highest purpose must be to achieve happiness because what else matters? And then also you can't really be happy if you aren't sexually fulfilled because human beings are sexual beings from birth onwards. And so these things like the nuclear family, they are holding us back from moving forward as a society. They need to be destroyed because they're oppressive and psychologically harmful. Your sexual desires are inherently good, so other people should affirm them. If they don't affirm your sexual desires, they just have an irrational fear that's based on taste, not principles. Sex and gender are two separate categories, and your gender can be detached from biology. Not only that, gender trumps biology. Your psychological sense of yourself, that's more important than the biological reality because your psychological happiness is based on the highest purpose in life, to be happy. So there you have it. Now we've talked about uh, where we are or at least how we got to where we are. Um, and that was going to be the first part of this big retrospective that I was doing on Pride Month. But here's what I'm thinking now. Uh, I think this subject is so big and we've already spent so much time just covering the history that as I will now want to talk about uh, the problems we're seeing today and where we're going to be going in the future, I think that's going to need to be its own program. Um, that's kind of how I'm feeling. So here's what I'm going to do. I want to go ahead and drop this episode, this part one, basically, on Thursday. And then uh, it's, so as you're listening to it or where you might be seeing when it dropped, it's dropping on a Thursday. That's a day earlier than usual. I'm going to go ahead and record part two. But I'm going to make that its own episode, and that's going to come out tomorrow, the day after this episode. So you won't have to wait long to get like the other half of this program, of this review that I'm doing, this retrospective on Pride Month. 
but um, I just feel like there's so much material to cover. I don't want to try to shove it all into one episode. I'm afraid if we have like a two or three hour episode, people aren't going to stop and, and listen to it. So I would like to just go ahead and break this content up and, and just do two. I'll go ahead and give you a couple episodes here. So we're going to go ahead and, and you get this one today. You don't have to wait long. We're going to have the next one drop tomorrow, but go ahead and take some time, process this information that we've covered today. We went through the history, basically the past 300 years of the sexual revolution, the thought processes, the new ideas that were introduced to society that led us to where we are today, to where something that used to be considered sexual deviance, um, frankly, homosexuality uh, and transgenderism, where these ideas are now publicly celebrated by every major corporation in America, in our public school system, by our entertainment industry, by most of the politicians in DC. And the worst of it all is they aren't done yet. The societal changes, the, the, the new ideas being introduced, we are not at the conclusion of where these ideas go. And so we need to talk about um, what are not just what are some of the, the fruits that are manifesting of all this right now, but what I see on the horizon as the next thing. So some of the stuff I said, hey, we're going to talk about that later. We are going to talk about it, but it's going to be on the next program. So make sure you tune back in to the next episode of Fake News, a fiery but mostly peaceful podcast. And this has been Luke Taylor. And we covered today where we've been, the philosophers and scientists who brought us to where we are. But you need to tune back in tomorrow because if you think they're done, if you think they don't have more change and redefinition they're going to shove on us, that's just fake news. Okay.